Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to shout out our Supercast, one of the main ways we fund the show. Sagar and I are about to record our next exclusive Q&A, Ask Me Anything episode early this upcoming Friday, aka tomorrow, for release later that morning. Subscribers to Supercast can access the Ask Me Anything discussion and submit your questions because it's Thursday, you still have time to do so. If you'd like to subscribe and add your own questions or check out what other people have submitted, go to realignment.supercast.com. On to today's episode. My guest today is Stephen Simon, author of the recently released Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. After all of our coverage of the Iraq War, Afghanistan, and the broad dissatisfaction with the past 20 years of the war on terror in terms of the United States, I wanted to do something a little more forward-facing rather than just looking at the past, focused on what the Middle East actually means to the U.S. in 2023, whether we've truly moved on, aka is there a possibility that this is like the 1990s where we think it's over after the desert storm, but 10 years later, September 11th happens. And what the broader lessons for U.S. foreign policy are as attention shifts to the Asia-Pacific and Eastern Europe as we face great power rivalry with China and Russia. Stephen is the perfect guest to cover this topic with. He was on the National Security Council staff as Senior Director for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs during the Obama administration. He worked on the NSC staff from 94 to 1999 on counterterrorism in the Middle East during the Clinton administration and had a 15-year career in the State Department prior to that. Lots of great things here. Love to hear what you think. You could send us an email or, of course, leave a question about anything we discussed on the Supercast website. Hope you all enjoyed the conversation and a huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. Stephen Simon, welcome to The Realignment. Well, thank you for having me on your program. Yes, it's really great to speak with you. So I usually hate when a guest does the whole talks through their bio, their life story. It's a little, not superficial, but unhelpful as a listener when they can look that up on a book jacket. But because the story we're discussing on this podcast is so tied to your actual career um, in U.S. foreign policy, I would love for you just to go over your actual bio, your resume, the role in which you played in this 40 plus year history in the U.S. and the Middle East. Uh, sure, Marshall. Thank you. I'll, 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 I'll do that. Um, um, but briefly, I, I came into government uh, as a kind of second or third career, I guess, uh, in uh, the first term of the Reagan administration. And I, I served um, uh, through, I served at the State Department through the first Gulf War, um, uh, where I was working on diplomatic support for military operations uh, associated with that war. And then um, uh, had a brief uh, period of uh, academic leave uh, working on um, mostly uh, Arabic language things at Oxford, and then uh, came back to Washington and served uh, then in the Clinton White House for um, six six years you know, or, or so um, as a, a counterterrorism advisor and uh, working on some sort of specialized Middle East security issues. Uh, after that, uh, I was assigned to London 
in and part of my time there was spent uh, on a kind of on a detail to a think tank, the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Uh, wrote a book there with a colleague um, uh, called Age of Sacred Terror, which was about the jihad leading up to 9-11 and the U.S. Uh, response. Uh, that book was uh, was well was well received. Um, I didn't. Uh, uh, I I left government uh, at that point after my assignment in London and worked for various think tanks um, and uh, did some teaching at Princeton and other places and then um, worked out in the Persian Gulf uh, for a while as a consultant to uh, the court of the Crown Prince and uh, United Arab Emirates. Uh, on security issues, um, principally, and then returned to government uh, uh, in the Obama administration, where I worked uh, in his first term as the senior director on the NSC for Middle East and North Africa. And and uh, then I retired really a second time, um, you know, at the end of the Obama administration and went straight into academics, where I've been uh, ever since. I'm at MIT now. So I want this to be a, a forward-facing episode that integrates the history that you're describing in Grand Delusion. Do you think, what, what would you say the Middle East means to the United States today in the year 2023? Most people, I think, even in policy circles have kind of moved on. Um, what is the significance of the region today? Well, that's... Um... That's a mighty big um, uh, question, but it is the central one, you know, I think. Um, uh, the, the Middle East is of uh, diminishing importance uh, to U.S. interests at this point. Uh, the U.S. had met its objectives, really, um, in the Middle East at the end of the Cold War, quite a long time ago, uh, once the existence and prosperity, really, of Israel it was secured and, and, and a steady flow of oil from Saudi Arabia uh, was uh, likewise uh, secured. So, I mean, in a way, um, you know, our interests have been diminishing ever since. The exception to that, of course, was uh, our entanglement in Iraq, uh, which uh, is now uh, really coming to a close. Um, I spent a lot of time in Iraq uh, last year. Uh, our relations, uh, the U.S. Uh, relations with Iraq are, um, you know, are normalizing. At this point, uh, they're they're not really militarized. They're mostly economic. Um, there's a bit of concern about the security situation, but ISIS at this stage is uh, more of a nuisance, you know, than anything than anything else. And our two, uh, you know, principal concerns at this stage, you know, Israel and, and Saudi Arabia, are so secure uh, that they feel quite comfortable diversifying their. Uh, diversifying their diplomatic portfolios and and dissing the United States when they feel that it's in their interest to do so. Uh, that's something that that would not have happened um, uh, before. And I think it it reflects uh, on the one hand, um, you know, the in a, in a way, the success of U.S. policy uh, and um, and on the other, uh, the uh, maturation uh, of these uh, of these states. In the meantime, uh, you know, they're they're not threatened. Uh, Saudi Arabia has no natural predators, and um, uh, and Israel is is pretty secure as well. It's got nuclear weapons, a large army, a defense industrial base, high per capita GDP. 
um, you know, they're they're doing pretty well. And at the same time, you know, the United States is moving on to other theaters, uh, particularly the Western Pacific and, of course, um, you know, Europe uh, and NATO in the context of the Ukraine-Russia war. So I, I see... I, I see the Middle East as, as being of continually uh, diminishing uh, interest. Uh, as Donald Trump said in 2019, when Iran attacked Saudi Arabia, um, uh, we do not need their oil, is what he said. Uh, and of course, you know, he was he was correct. Um, so I don't um, I don't think that the U.S. Uh, is it, is entangled or will be entangled in anything like the way it has been during this 40-year arc of intervention, you know, between the, the the Reagan administration's first term and and the end of the Obama administration. I think the one, two wrinkles in the story you just told. So one, wouldn't couldn't one argue that the quote-unquote natural predator, to use your metaphor, in the context of Israel and Saudi Arabia, wouldn't that be Iran? In terms of how they're positioning themselves regionally, yeah, I think Iran is a problem uh, potentially, you know, for both uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel, but uh, it's not an existential threat. Now, of course, uh, if Iran had nuclear weapons, it could, by definition, be an existential threat to you know any any country to which it could deliver a warhead. Uh, but it doesn't have a nuclear weapon, although it could have. One, I assume fairly quickly, uh, if they decided to go for it, because, you know, the agreement that the United States, the EU, China and Russia had with uh, Iran uh, to um, halt its nuclear weapons program uh, until, well, 2031 uh, was ripped up by Donald Trump. So, uh, you know, there's there's a bit more exposure uh, for Israel uh, at at this stage, but the Israelis didn't favor that agreement. So, um, <laughs> what, what what can you do, really? Um, uh, but but it's it's hard to see scenarios in which uh, the Iranians uh, seriously threaten Saudi Arabia, uh, for one thing. Um, and, and in fact, the Saudis are now engaged in intensive talks and have been really for the past year, at least, uh, with Iran that are hosted by the Iraqis uh, in Baghdad. And 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 the Israelis seem uh, pretty secure uh, in their approach to Iran right now. Uh, their, uh, their talking points uh, nowadays are that, well, yes, uh, Iran is uh, enriching at 60%, and that's a consequence of there being no agreement to limit uh, their enrichment. But they don't see in the cards right now uh, an Iranian decision to produce a weapon. And when you uh, talk to Israelis about their military options, uh, they generally say, well, right now, they don't have a really good military option uh, for reasons that we could explore if you wish. Um, but but they think that within two years, uh, they'll have a workable uh, military approach to stanching uh, Iran's uh, nuclear program uh, if if Iran goes beyond 60%. The Iranians, yeah. of course, 
have enriched to 84.7% in, in minute quantities, but the Israelis sort of brushed that off, interestingly. So two questions then. So one, to understand the enrichment part of the conversation, does one need to enrich to 100% to have the capacity to go nuclear? Is, is that how I should understand it? 90% more or less. Uh, 90% enrichment is uh, is regarded as weapons grade Okay. Uh, uranium. So you have, um, uh, uh, you know, U-235 uh, in, in a sufficient quantity, um, you know, 10 to 15 kilograms, you know, something like that, depending on the level of the enrichment of the fuel that you're using. Uh, you can, um, you know, create a so-called physics package, which is, you know, um, the the term of art for um, you know an explosive device that you would put in a warhead and and detonate somewhere. So, um, and it's it's generally thought that once you're you know sixty percent or above, then uh, the challenge of getting to a weapons grade um, uh, uh, level uh, fuel is is quite modest. There's not much of uh, of an issue. So, um, you know, in consequence, many people regard uh, Iran now as a so-called threshold state, which is to say that they can create a weapon so quickly, you know, at this stage, that you might as well think of them as a nuclear weapon state. So then speak to the your point about the Israelis not believing they have any viable options over the next two years. How can you expand on that? There are there are a range of targets that the Israelis uh, would have to strike, um, or believe they would have to strike, uh, in order to disable the program in a way that it would be difficult to reconstitute quickly. No one disputes the fact that the Iranians could reconstitute a program that that had been attacked at some point, but the question is how fast could they could they do it? So. You know, the more intensive your attack, the bigger its scope, uh, the uh, the less likely it is that the Iranians will be able to reconstitute very quickly. In order to carry out um, strikes like that, you have to, the Israelis would have to use virtually their whole air force, you know, at this point, and possibly have to put people in on the ground um, to attack, um, you know, certain buried targets that would be difficult for the Israelis, given their current uh, military uh, capacity to destroy. Uh, this is a, a huge effort for a relatively small country like Israel. Um, they could pull it off, but they couldn't keep it going, which is uh, something the United States, for example, could do, which is one of the reasons the Israelis are so eager for the United States either to join them or to take the initiative uh, and attack Iran, because our military capacity and the weapons that we have and so forth um, are, uh, you know, <laughs> they're quite impressive uh, and and could um, uh, and and could do some serious damage uh, to the uh, Iranian program that would take a while to um, to repair. I don't know what the Israelis are are working on uh, right now. But uh, they seem to think that uh, within a couple of years, they'll have, uh, I think, weapons that will enable them to penetrate deeply buried um, uh, Iranian nuclear facilities and, 
and and that's that's I think key uh, from an Israeli perspective. As you look at the American political scene today, do you see any appetite on either side of the aisle to embrace um, joining in, leading any sort of anti-Iranian nuclear program strikes? No, I I don't. Um, even when um, I need to think about that for a second. Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't detected any great enthusiasm uh, for that. And and you know, most of the uh, attention directed at Iran recently, particularly uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, has been generated by the um, uh, harsh and violent uh, response of the Iranian government to hijab protesters. Um, and, and and that's attracted, uh, you know, a lot of uh, serious criticism uh, uh, on the Hill. And, and Iranian, uh, what people are, are calling Iranian uh, regional malign activities, which is to say Iranian support for Houthi rebels in uh, Yemen, Iranian support for uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad uh, in Syria, uh, and and Iranian encroachment uh, within Iraq, uh, particularly in the form of its support for militias uh, in Iraq that are technically part of the Iraqi military force structure, but um, you know in many respects are are independent, uh, and and take um, uh, and some of them take guidance from uh, from Iran. That seems to be the bigger concern uh, in Washington now, not so much uh, the nuclear issue. I'd love to zoom out and kind of focus on the broad narrative arc of the book and ask a really cheap question as an interviewer. What was the grand delusion? And to what degree do you see that grand delusion applying to other regions? Let's say like the Pacific moving forward. Let's say to post-Ukraine war Europe. Is this a story where there's a general reality of the Middle East for the past 40 years? Or is there a broader concern about inclinations within the broader U.S. foreign policy approach? The delusions as they applied to the Middle East were essentially that um, the United States uh, could remake the Middle East in its own image, and that doing so would have positive consequences globally. Uh, that's the one delusion. Uh, the second delusion is that the United States ha actually had the power to accomplish that. Uh, and those two delusions were a sort of piggybacking on perennial problems. Um, and uh, that, that like the first two delusions, actually afflicted um, uh, governments in the United States of both parties. Mm -hmm. This is a kind of a nonpartisan um, uh, issue. And those those two other uh, issues were one, uh, domestic politics, and second, uh, uh, the perennial concern over reputation and credibility, and um, you know perceptions of America as as exhibiting uh, you know serious resolve, and and that that preoccupation stemmed from you know concern for maintaining deterrence. You know the way you keep people from attacking you is by um, uh, you know, beating your chest and 
you know, looking looking tough and doing what you need to sustain that that impression. So when you combined all these things, uh, you wound up with um, a really powerful impulse to intervention uh, in the Middle East. And and um, because the United States uh, lacked the power to accomplish what it sought to do uh, in the Middle East, the, its credibility, needless to say, uh, you know, suffered. Um, and uh, it really wasn't until I would say the the tail end of of Obama's first term that the fever broke. In other words, this this sort of um, you know cluster of um, of delusions and and misperceptions really kicked in hard in Reagan's first term, and it peaked with the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. And then and then it began, you know, its decline as the consequences of that um, that intervention and its and its massive costs, not just to the United States, but also to Iraq itself, um, you know, became became evident. Now, you can hear echoes of this. And I think, you know, you're you're right, Marshall. I mean, you could see echoes of it with respect to China, but more, um, but more emphatically, I think, in talking about in the in the U.S. government discourse about Russia and Ukraine and um, uh, you know freedom versus uh, 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 authoritarianism and 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 so forth, uh, the uh, the the difference, I think, is that. And here I'm, I'm. I'm just going out on a limb. I mean, no, please. I, that's the format. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you know, greetings from the limb. Um, uh, I, I think that the, that there is, a, some you know underlying, factual or objective, concerns that the United States has about Russia and China, that simply didn't exist. Mm-hmm with respect to the Middle East um, for, uh, you know, quite a quite a long time during which the United States was actively engaged there. So um, uh, that's, to, to my mind, there's, there's a bit of a difference between uh, the applications of this uh, rhetoric uh, to, um, you know, China and Russia on the one hand and the Middle East as it, as it was applied. Uh, by previous administrations, so that's that's my you know on the limb, off the cuff uh, reply. Yeah, no, so many things I want to pick up there. So number one, it seems to me, in no particular order, to your point about the you know autocracy versus democracy, freedom, those different dynamics. It seems to me that aside from various either statements or misstatements by President Biden, um, the difference between 2022 and 2002 is that in 2002, the Bush administration is in many ways um, taking its rhetoric around an axis of evil, a rhetoric around deterrence um, to its logical conclusion within their framework in the sense of, okay, if there's this axis of evil, which includes Iraq, well, we're going to pursue a policy of regime change. Um, when it comes to conversations about autocracy and democracy um, in, you know, China, in, in, in Russia, besides those statements, I don't think there's any uh, 
fair assumption at all that the Biden administration is seriously debating, okay, like how do we overthrow the CCP? How do we actually directly overthrow um, overthrow uh, the Putin uh, regime? Because I think in this key case, there is a real, I think, just takeaway from that rhetoric in 2002 um, in terms of what the U.S. can actually do. You could debate the degree to which our Ukraine policy or our China policy is correct, but it seems as if we really are in this post uh forever war, post-Middle Eastern war, um, reduction in scope. Would you would you agree with that characterization or would you poke any holes in that? I think it's largely correct. I mean, I think there's a more um, uh, realistic assessment of the limits of U.S. power uh, and of the strength of its adversaries. And, that, and, you know, compared to 2002, I mean, the, the structure of the global order uh, is just, you know, quite different to what it was uh, then. Uh, there's, um, you know, you can you can see more than just glimpses of multipolarity uh, in in the global order now, which is uh, in itself uh, uh, a constraint on the freedom of U.S. action. And uh, at this point as well, the United States is dealing with adversaries in Asia and Europe that are uh, nuclear armed. And that in itself imposes limits, uh, as it did in the Cold War between the U.S. and Soviet Union, uh, on the degree to which um, uh, they could risk um, uh, direct conflict and, 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 and therefore fought primarily through proxies. So, um, yeah, I mean, this, the, the strategic environment uh, uh, for the United States now uh, with respect to these uh, you know, two major power adversaries is completely different to what it was uh, in the Middle East. That you know, the the, the irony uh, here, if that's if that's the right word, um, is that even in dealing with the Middle East, the United States didn't have the power uh, to accomplish you know its 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 goals. And and some of the policies that it pursued, um, especially say under Clinton, of dual containment. Uh, uh, which the, the doctrine of dual containment, as as it was developed by the Clinton administration, was that the United States didn't have to rely on Iraq and Iran to balance against one another and essentially neutralize, you know, their troublemaking capacities for everyone else in the region, um, but rather the United States could take on the role of uh, containing both Iran and Iraq, and it turned out the United States really didn't have the power. Uh, to do that. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, that policy led to a comparatively strong uh, Iran and comparatively weak, um, you know, Iraq, which was uh, turned out not to be such a good outcome, um, you know, for the United States strategically. You know, here's what I'm curious about. What did then the United States have the power to do circa, let's say, October 2001 to roughly uh, December 2002? Um, in the sense that overthrowing the Taliban, chasing bin Laden into Pakistan, that was completely within the United States' power. Um, you know, remaking uh, Iraq. But actually, the, the, you know, and I'm sure you, you, you cover this in the history, obviously, but, you know, there were a variety of debates you could have had. They, they, even after the invasion of Iraq, there could have been a variety of different paths. Um, you could have invaded, overthrown Saddam. Um, in the quick period that he was overthrown, and then washed your hands of it, thrown it to the UN, um, 
did the weird 2006 Joe Biden option and split Iraq into three different countries. And you could have done that. So I, I guess what I'm really asking you is where where actually was the, and I'm not saying any of those moves were inherently the right decisions, but those actually were within American power. It, it seems to me that you're, you're really drawing the line at treating post-2003 Iraq as equivalent to Germany and Japan after World War II. Um, this country, which we were hostile towards, that we could see 50, 60 years later, a completely reoriented relationship between the countries. How would you think about this? Well, here's what I think about that. Um, uh, first is, I mean, I think you're right in a number of respects. Uh, uh, the first is that, uh, you know, nothing is foreordained or inevitable. And there were alternative courses of action, uh, you know, in the wake of, of 9-11. I mean, at at its most basic, um, you know, no one, no one really believes that if Al Gore had been elected president, some would say he was elected president, but if, if Al Gore uh, had been in office uh, uh, in, uh, you know, in, in September uh, 2001, uh, the United States would not have included Iraq uh, on its list of target countries. Um, now, for Bush, uh, it, was a, it was a natural target for a number of reasons uh, that I, I, I think are broadly, you know, understood. But but in this respect, too, I mean, you're right. Uh, the, the, the plan didn't have to include uh, the democratization uh, of Iraq, the attempt to rebuild the state under some new, you know, kind of alternative uh, political uh, arrangement. Um, it could have it could have just gone in killed the king and 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 pulled out if you know it became Can I push back on that hearing you say that though it's it's interesting and once again like i was in fifth grade at the time so my opinion literally does not matter but fifth grade marshall was opposed to the war in iraq um from what i could glean from the pbs news hour but i think my my kind of pushback um, to that dynamic was that I don't think there was an alternative. Like once you, it, this is the, you know, Colin Powell, you break it, you buy it framework. Once get, given those domestic political pressures that you were discussing earlier, I don't see a world where the United States could have just said, okay, you know, it's July, 2003, an insurgency has started up. You have inter-ethnic and religious conflict really tapping up. We're just going to leave and then watch that then proceed poorly over the next two years. I think if you want to, um, and once again, regardless of your opinion on um, the Biden administration's withdrawal from Kabul and Afghanistan, the fact that it went poorly domestically impacted the presidency. So if Bush, part of the reason why Bush, I think, was always going to stay and democratize is that in a democracy, I don't, once you broke it, I don't see what the political alternative was. And you were there. So maybe, maybe you'd think about it differently. Do I think about it differently? Let me, I'm, I'm not really sure uh, that I do, but I would frame it a little bit differently. Um, uh, the, in, so there's the question of why did Bush choose to do what he did? And the question, were there reasonable alternatives? And I think it's on the, it's on the second point that you and I might differ uh, a little bit. But to the first point, you know, it's interesting when you, when you look at the 
at the planning and the campaign histories uh, of the 2003 war and the preparation for it and so forth, um, they this the the Bush administration was thinking in terms of something that you raised before, which was the occupation of Germany uh, by the United States uh, following uh, its victory in the European theater in 1945. And uh, they. Uh, sought certain parallels. So just as the American occupation uh, government, uh, well, the allied occupation government in, in Germany in 45 instituted a policy of denazification, um, which, uh, you know, was pursued up to a point. Um, uh, so the uh, occupation government in Iraq pursued a policy of debathification. Uh, the bath being the party to which, uh, you know, Saddam belonged and which he led. Uh, now, that was a very self-conscious parallel uh, to uh, to what was going on, and in in the attempt to uh, form a new Iraqi government under a new system and uh, install it uh, in two thousand five, that was also um, you know very very much a parallel to what the United States uh, and and some of the you know allies sought to do uh, in in Berlin. In, uh, in Bonn in, in 1945. So um, uh, they, they saw themselves as inheritors of a, of a powerful legacy, uh, in a sense, um, a kind of a derived greatest generation. And Iraq was, was their Germany. And, and you know, uh, it, on the on the face of it, I mean, it seems absurd, uh, but uh, but anyway, they seem uh, really to have believed that you know pretty strongly. Now, as to alternatives, I guess this is where I uh, I, I suppose I disagree with you because I think you know it was an alternative if the, if the United States chose to do this um, uh, to go into uh, uh, Baghdad, bump off uh, Saddam, and find uh, a compliant um, general, you know, Sunni general. Uh, to take over uh, in in Saddam's place, pledging to um, you know abjure uh, WMD until the end of time and um, uh, and and so forth. But but you know that approach, which I do think was possible, um, would have uh, conflicted with this you know basic impulse that i described a second ago of you know wanting to rebuild iraq and america's image and 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 so forth so um you know the the, the big problems with the occupation uh were the fact that it was entrusted to um you know inexperienced political appointees by the administration and 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 didn't use any of the vast planning output that uh, the the intelligence community and the State Department and even some parts of the Pentagon uh, had put together, uh, you know, to regulate uh, the occupation of Iraq and produce some kind of stable outcome. Uh, and instead, you know, the the really experienced people who were the first in, like General Jay Garner and his and his State Department uh, associates, who were quite experienced, uh, they were they were removed fairly quickly uh, and replaced by, um, you know, L. Paul Bremer, Jerry Bremer, um, 
as uh, as as head of things. And then, you know, Bremer came in and as is famously known, um, uh, you know, wrote to his uh, uh, to his staff that he thought his arrival should be marked um, by a series of dramatic moves, uh, one of which was um, to disband the Iraqi army, thus dispersing, you know, hordes of young uh, men with military experience, but unemployed throughout Iraq. And, and the second was this debathification. And both turned out to be destabilizing for Iraq and contributed to a civil war uh, that tore the country apart, killed a lot of Americans, and certainly killed a very large number of Iraqis. So there you go. Something you do at a career level is you 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 teach you're you're engaging with young people and as I'm thinking I'm, I'm 31 so I'm gradually leaving the uh, quote unquote young person category but something I like to think about when I'm discussing this issue is is I think the fascinating fact that George W. Bush um, in the voice of Condi Rice before he became president in 2001 um, is writing these foreign affairs articles um, literally saying. In the 90s, we were too interventionist. We were too driven by these Clintonian humanitarian intervention policies. And instead, we're going to have an American foreign policy that is driven by our interests. Uh, there are always like realists and non-interventionists who attack the Bush administration. And I say, if you go back and read that, read that piece in 2000, you'll be nodding along um, in terms of that basic critique. Um, so what I'm kind of getting at there with this question is the Bush administration preconceived notions of how U.S. foreign policy should operate did not survive first contact with the enemy slash history slash actual events. So if September 11th happens, the pre-September 10 playbook is thrown out the window. How would you advise future leaders, future administrations, anyone of interest who's listening to not just be completely hobbled by events to just throw out their preconceived notions and just go in the complete opposite direction. Because that's kind of like my takeaway of reading that part of the history, which is A, either the non-interventionism wasn't actually deeply rooted and was more just superficial responding, responding to 1990s dynamics. Um, and it wasn't actually a sustainable foundational structure for policy that got undergirded administration where events are going to happen. So how, how would you respond to this? Yeah, I was at a on a panel. I think it was at Aspen uh, before the uh, invasion of Iraq, where one of one of the other participants was a former Secretary of State, um, with you know a pretty distinguished reputation um, and deservedly, you know. So, uh, and and the question came up for the for the panel: Well, should we invade Iraq? And I said, no, I didn't think that was a good idea. Can of worms. It's a non sequitur to the 9-11 attacks. No, let's not, let's, let's not do that. And, and this former Secretary of State got very agitated by that response. And, and he asked me, well, then who should we invade? Now, that's, it, it sounds... You know, when taken out of context, it sounds kind of funny, you know, sort of a bit, bit strange. But, um, you know, I think what he meant was after the 9-11 attacks, it was absolutely essential that the United States wage war against someone, 
um, it, the United States needed to display kind of a robust uh, resolve and determination to subdue enemies and a willingness to use force on a, on a grand scale and in a way that demonstrated the real potential of American military power. And, and quick interruption, because it seems to me, because I think most folks obviously weren't paying attention to this history, a post 9-11 critique that you could have offered to the Clinton administration, I don't know the degree to which this is true, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, would be, look, you have the first um, World Trade Center bombing. You have a variety of incidents um, from, from the coal, USS coal bombing to um, the bombings um, in Nairobi and Kenya. And essentially, it was treated either as, let's toss some Patriot missiles at a factory in Sudan that doesn't really matter, or we'll treat this as a law enforcement issue. So the FBI is going to handle it. Um, so it seems to me some of that, like we should invade energy was, we need to treat this like the threat that it actually is and go in that direction. Um, that seemed to me, as I read the history, sort of the uh, like tonal shift um, when it came to the approach. Is, 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 is that an accurate reading or, or, or is that just not really present at the time when you're thinking about this? The thing about the period before 9-11 is that it was before 9-11. Uh, and, uh, you know, a good answer, which is true. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it was difficult under the circumstances to, um, uh, you know, to mobilize the government. Um, but uh, at least that, that was my perspective from the White House, uh, you know, at that uh, at that point. Um, there was, uh, you know, there, there was a lethal, you know, finding, uh, you know, that is to say, uh, uh, you know, a, a document authorizing, uh, you know, the capture or um, uh, or killing of of Osama bin Laden, and in, in, uh, in the United States uh, in that period uh, explored a number of ways to to carry that out, um, but it 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 never really could do so. My recollection is is because to do so required cooperation from Pakistan. And uh, as um, as the fact that Osama bin Laden eventually settled peacefully and happily in Pakistan for uh, you know for many years um, demonstrated uh, the United States couldn't rely on Pakistani cooperation, and otherwise the U.S. had no basis from which to operate and and carry out um, uh, kind of an operation on the ground uh, that would that would kill bin Laden, and also before 9/11. Because it was before 9-11, uh, there was um, uh, uh, a concern about collateral damage that that disappeared after 9-11. So, you know, the United States would plan raids, um, you know, air raids on um, uh, on, on bin Laden uh, facilities or al-Qaeda camps where he was believed um, uh, to be staying for short periods and, and everybody would get geared up and then it would turn out that, well, you know, where he was believed to be staying was, uh, you know, very close to a school or very close to a mosque. And, you know, uh, we would look at the range arcs and, um, you know, the, 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 the radii that in which, you know, lethality was pretty much guaranteed. Uh, you know, by the by the munition that would be used. And, and everybody said, well, now we can't risk killing children, you know, to kill kill bin Laden. Now, of course, after 9-11, killing children, well, <laughs> that's not a problem. Um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna go after the bad guys no matter what it takes, because the 9-11 attacks were just so shocking. 
they were really they were really deranging. Um, and uh, I can understand. I understood then, and I understand in retrospect. Uh, you know why why that was uh, why that was the case. But to your to, but to your underlying point, um, uh, yes, it would have been great if if the United States could have kind of just nipped this in the bud. Uh, you know, in the 1990s or, or any point before uh, before 2001, but in in the pre 9/11 environment, and nobody was really all that interested in going. You know, the 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 distance and taking the kind of of risks with um, you know bilateral relations with Pakistan, say, or. Uh, or the risk of of collateral damage. So, so there we were. Uh, but the Al- but but Al Qaeda had been planning, you know, the nine eleven thing, um, uh, you know, for a while. Or or it looks as though they were. I don't think that there's enough known really um, about the conspiracy, at least publicly, because none of the uh, none of the participants ever went to trial. And these kinds of things generally emerge, you know, for the pub, for the public, you know, in that uh, in a judicial um, uh, context. I don't know if that answered your question. No, no, it, it, it does, because um, it's just because once again, I I think the something I just try to get at when I discuss this episode is I I and the audience hates when I do this, but I really don't like focusing the conversation on Bush lied, people died, like this, this or that, because to a certain degree it removes the timelessness of the issues that are raised by the history you're telling here, which is an event happens. Your instinct is to throw out everything you preconceived before and go on to the other extreme. This is early American Cold War history. This is who lost China. This is X, X, Y, and Z. And as we're thinking about this post uh, forever war, great power conflict dynamic, I, I think it's really important to think to what degree is there a timeless dilemma that anyone in any sort of foreign policy decision-making capacity is going to have to confront. So a, a, another dynamic that I'd like to talk about in these last few minutes, um, I started the episode by saying, oh, I feel like America is just moving on from the Middle East. Um, to counter myself, my default understanding of post-Cold uh, War history is that as soon as you quit, you're almost certainly pulled back. So if it's 2001, before 9-11, we're talking about Hainan Island um, and the Chinese. We're talking about Taiwan, you know, Bill Clinton sending carrier groups to the Taiwan Strait. We just move on from that. Um, and then 15 years later, everything's great power competition. 2011, um, we leave Iraq, quote unquote. 2015, we're, we're back fully there um, fighting ISIS. So as much as I want to say, okay, we've learned our lesson, we're moving on. I think that policy-minded people who are listening should be fully prepared for a possibility of a world where, guess what, it's 2032, an X, Y, and Z thing has happened, and we're back in the Middle East. Um, to what degree am I just sort of over-narrativizing history, which isn't moving in any one direction, isn't inevitable in any one thing? How would you think about that? Because I, I, I just don't, I just feel as if we're going to be back in some respect. That's just my, my visceral reaction. Yeah, so... Um... Uh, well, first of all, I don't think your reaction is misplaced, you know, or 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 sort of unwise uh, in in any way. Uh, there's always the possibility of going back, and that's you know, in some respects, that that's how I end the book. It's like, well, you know, we could wind up going back, and I and and there are two uh, pathways 
uh, you know, to a, a return, a military return uh, of of the United States to the Middle East. I mean, a military intervention, not a military return, because we're still there militarily, um, you know, particularly in the Gulf. And you know, I don't see that changing anytime soon. But um, uh, the first would be a conflict with with Iran. It, and the risk of of such a conflict is is I think pretty high, uh, at least right now. And uh, you know, which is one of the reasons why everyone is on pins and needles uh, about the direction that Iran you know chooses to go. And one of the first things I, I you know I asked when the news of the Chinese brokered Iranian Saudi uh concordat you know was was announced was well did the chinese get any commitments from the iranians to hold enrichment at a level well below weapons grade i mean that would have been a significant you know outcome of of of, of this agreement but anyway that's unknown um, i mean perhaps they they did elicit such an agreement maybe they didn't i don't know but the but the fact that the Iranians, um, you know, are in their current posture, um, and the Israelis are very nervous, um, and they're looking for ways in which they can deal uh, with this problem, keeps the pathway to renewed war uh, with Iran open. And and if the United States gets involved uh, in that, in in a campaign, uh, you know, to to destroy. Uh, the Iranian uh, nuclear uh, program. I mean, it's going to be a, a coordinated, sustained series of airstrikes that's going to go on for a while. I mean, the United States will be at war with the Islamic Republic. I mean, when that, you know, when that happens. So um, that's that's a danger. The other, which I think so is it's a not, it's not, it's not Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> There's no one. I don't know if you saw. I don't know if you saw the Top Gun sequel, but obviously the country they're striking <laughs> is obviously a kind of sci-fi version of Iran, and it seems like it's handled in one daring airstrike. <laughs> well, you know, the, it it sort of depends what the Iranians do, because if the Iranians choose to retaliate, uh, which they might. Um, uh, you know, after U.S. attacks, then the U.S. will respond to that retaliation, and then you know the 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 conflict just spirals, and it turns into something bigger than it was meant to be. You know, at the outset, uh, when the U.S. will undoubtedly have said, "Well, we are just enforcing the will of the international community res with respect to this nuclear program. That's all we want to do. No regime change, nothing else." But you know, the thing will escalate. Then there's the you know the ISIS uh, you know threat, but I think you know we're we're sort of covered um, um, by the assistance that we're giving to the Iraqi uh, military uh, and by keeping uh, you know a small number of troops in uh, in eastern Syria, where you know ISIS uh, you know really you know that's where they are. Uh, so. Um, uh, yeah, but that's a, but that's a lesser threat. I think that, that I think the main pathway to the return of the United States uh, in an interventionist mode, a military interventionist mode in the Middle East is is, is going to be Iran, which is why anyway it's really important to resolve this nuclear thing one way or another. Um, uh, well, not one way or another. Resolve it. I was, I was about I was about to say like <laughs> you just outlined a very specific means of uh, <laughs> handling that situation. <laughs> Yeah. So here's the closing question. 
warnings about not just saying, okay, we're done with that. We're washing our hands. We're never going back to the Middle East aside. Um, the next generationally defining, I don't want to say conflict because that assumes inevitability, but at least theater of potential operations, theater of crisis theory, theater of of where events are going to transpire is, is clearly in this like broader Eurasian um, context of, you know, Eastern Europe um, and China. What would just be, considering your career, considering your history, what would your advice be for folks who are in your place um, when you started in the Middle East. So 40 years ago, you, you, you're, you're entering the space, you're entering government. What would be your advice um, for anyone who's entering the policy space during a period that's going to be defined um, by this Sino-Russian-American theater of potential conflict? Uh, yeah, so uh, Obama's you know, dictum, as, uh, as was bodlerized, don't do stupid stuff. I mean, uh, to me, that's in the ranks of I think, therefore, I am. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a profound it's a profound thing. So that would be, uh, you know, I would I would reiterate that. Um, and then and then there would be, you know, stick to your knitting, um, which is to say, focus on core U.S. interests. What's really um, what's really a threat uh, or or very likely to emerge as a serious threat to core U.S. interests, and don't overreact. Don't overreact, and and don't relate discrete problems that we face with other countries to grand theories of um, you know clashes of civilizations, of freedom versus authoritarianism, um, uh, or strategic competition at sort of a, a, a global level. You have a problem, you, a discrete problem, you resolve it discreetly and you avoid linking it uh, to, um, uh, to major issues that soon um, uh, you know, evolve into uh, uh, questions of war and peace. That's, that's really it. That is an excellent place to end. Stephen Simon, thank you for joining me on The Realignment. The book is Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. You can find it wherever you purchase your books, especially our bookshop. Thank you for joining me on The Realignment. Thanks very much, Marshall. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like the show of mission or want to access our subscriber exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year or 500 for a lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.